Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Most of you, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. I promise you, we'll get out of the Gospel of Luke sometime within the next decade. No, I'm not I'm just joking. <laughs> We've been in Luke for a while. Some of you may not have ever heard this story, but back in 2014, there was a man from Canada named Frank Barassa, and he made headlines because he claimed to be the world's best counterfeiter. He was able to produce $20 U.S. bills that authorities said were not detectable by the naked eye. And his printing operation could possibly print up to $250 million in fake U.S. currency. So here's what he did. He spent two years studying the $20 bill. He went to the Secret Service website, and he basically was a one-man operation in having this fake $20 bill. In May of 2012, the Canadian police seized $1 million worth of fake U.S. $20 bills, and he was arrested. Now, because his $20 bills were so masterfully done, people thought, the authorities thought, this was like a mass operation. This was like a big racket. There was only one guy, a hundred or $1 million worth of $20 bills. Now, here's the interesting thing that happened. You want to know how long he served? Six weeks in prison and paid a $1,500 fine. He handed over $200 million in $20 U.S. bills. He is known as the modern-day counterfeiter, the one that could fake a $20 bill, and he got caught, but he was a master of deception. Now, what comes to your mind when you think of counterfeiters, when you think of fakes? The person in history who had the darkest heart of hypocrisy that fooled everyone around him with a heart of deception. We think of none other than Judas Iscariot, the ultimate betrayer, the ultimate counterfeiter, the ultimate faker. He fooled everyone around him. All for 30 pieces of silver. Now, last week we had our missions conference and we were thankful for all of our missionaries being here and it was a wonderful time. And so I want us to get back into the Gospel of Luke because we've been out of it for a week. But I want just to remind you what chapter 21 was about. Chapter 21, Jesus is in the temple teaching about the end times. He's talking about his second coming. He's talking about being ready for the second coming of Christ. And I just want to backtrack to where we were to get our bearings straight because the irony is deafening that we see Judas start out in chapter 22 right on the heels of what Jesus warned his disciples about in his second coming. So let's look at chapter 21 and let's start in verse 34 and then we're going to move into 
chapter 22 where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. Remember, Jesus ends this public discourse, watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all the things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple. But at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Watch out. Stay awake. Be ready for the second coming so that you can stand before the Son of Man on that day. Judas was there. He heard these warnings. Now let's go into chapter 22 and see what unfolds. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the crowd. Now, the historical account's pretty straightforward. Judas agrees to betray Jesus. But I want to look at this a little bit deeper this morning, and I want us to ask three questions. Here's the first question I want to ask this morning. Why did Judas agree to betray Jesus? Why do you do it? Well, allow me to give you three reasons. The first one is mind-boggling. The first is that Judas did not resist Satan. Verse 3, Satan entered into Judas. The word Satan means enemy or adversary. And this is the only time it's ever mentioned that Satan himself entered into another person. Satan, that ancient serpent, that slithered into the Garden of Eden and presented Adam and Eve with the temptation to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if you remember his treachery and Adam and Eve's sin, in Genesis 3.15, God pronounces a curse way back at the very beginning on the devil. In Genesis 3.15, God says, I will put enmity between you, speaking to the devil, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, this is the very first promise of a Messiah that we find in the Bible. He will come, this man, this Messiah, Jesus. It's promised right here in Genesis 3.15 that Jesus would come and defeat Satan. But I want you to notice the word there, enmity, warfare. There's going to be continual warfare between God's people and Satan until the very end of time the great enemy of our souls, the devil. 
Now, we've already seen the devil show up in the Gospel of Luke all the way back in chapter 4 when he tempted Jesus in the wilderness. He tried to derail Jesus and get Jesus off the mission. And at the very end of that, after those 40 days of temptation, listen to what Luke records for us in Luke 4.13. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Now is the opportune time. Judas has flung the door wide open to allow Satan to come in and tempt him and lead him to betray. He's an easy target. What does Peter say about the devil? 1 Peter 5, 8-9. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, there again, that's the word Satan. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. The devil's a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, and he goes right to Judas. And Peter says, resist the devil. Now James 4, 7 says this, Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Resist the devil, stand against the devil, and the devil will flee. Judas does not resist the devil. He flings the door wide open. And Satan entered into Judas. In John's Gospel, John 13, 2, it says this, During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. This is scary to me, that the devil himself entered into Judas to lead him to tempt him to do this act of treachery. J.C. Ryle says it this way, To be tempted by Satan's bad enough. To be sifted, buffeted, and led captive by him is terrible. But when Satan enters a man and dwells in him, the man becomes indeed a child of hell. Judas was a child of hell at that moment. Now, I don't know all of the details here about what's exactly going on, but this is almost like demon possession. But I want you to notice something about it. Other times in the Gospel of Luke when we've seen somebody possessed by a demon, they're they're convulsing, they're frothing at the mouth, they're living in caves and cutting themselves and howling at the moon, all this weird manifestation. Judas does not demonstrate any of those types of things. He's cool, calm, collected, calculated, every step of the way, yet he is being possessed by Satan. Judas knew exactly what he was doing. Judas was the one who invited Satan into his heart because he wanted Satan more than he wanted Jesus. R.C. Sproul says it this way, Satan didn't coerce Judas to perform that act. They were partners in crime. Judas acquiesced willingly out of the darkness of his own heart. He didn't need Satan to possess him. He was happy for that occasion. It's almost as if betrayal was already in the heart of Judas to do it. Satan came to him and said, do you want to be partners in crime? And Judas said, absolutely. Doesn't resist him. And so Judas opens the door and says, come on in, Satan. And Satan comes in. And now he's under the influence of the enemy. Calvin says it this way, 
Satan is said to enter into the reprobate when he takes possession of all their senses, overthrows their fear of God, extinguishes the light of reason, and destroys every feeling of shame. That's what happened to Judas. He no longer felt shame. He no longer felt God. He no longer had the light of conscience. He was somehow possessed by Satan to do this. That's the reason, number one, why Judas did it. Satan entered into him. But here's the second reason. Judas was greedy. Judas was greedy. His flesh got the better of him. Now, Matthew's gospel tells us he did it for 30 pieces of silver. Now, you may ask, well, what's 30 pieces of silver? Is that like a million dollars? No. It wasn't like Judas did it for a million dollars. 30 pieces of silver would be equivalent to four months' wages, about four months' salary. Not a lot of money. Judas sold his soul for 30 pieces of silver. We also know from John's gospel that Judas was upset when Mary of Bethany poured out that expensive ointment on Jesus' feet. You remember when she anointed him with oil? And in John 12, 5 through 6, Judas says, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. John's, John gives a little comment there. Judas was a thief. Not only was he possessed by Satan, but he was already a thief before this happened. He was a greedy man. He was a thief. He was the treasurer. He held the money bag. Judas was gripped by the love of money. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money, not money, the love of money, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierce themselves with many pangs. Notice how Paul talks about the love of money causing you to wander from the faith. So Judas was greedy. He had a love of money. He was materialistic, but he also was influenced by Satan himself. But here's the third reason, and don't ask me to explain this. This is a hard one. Here's the third reason. Ultimately, it was God's sovereign plan for Judas to betray Jesus. Now, where do you get this, Pastor Sean? You see this in John's gospel. When Jesus, in John chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000, he goes across the sea, he goes to this, the, 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 the synagogue in Capernaum, he begins teaching these hard truths. Many people want to leave because of these hard truths. Listen to what John records about Judas and what Jesus says about Judas. John 6, 66-71. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. That's not the original 12. That's just followers. So Jesus said to the 12, Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Jesus sovereignly knew who was going to betray him. He calls Judas a devil. Listen to the words that Jesus prays when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the high priestly prayer of Jesus. This is in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before he's being arrested by Judas or the authorities being led to by by Judas. 
John 17, 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus calls Judas the son of destruction, the son of perdition, the son of hell, literally. Prophesied in Scripture. This was the man prophesied in Scripture that would betray Jesus as it had been God's sovereign plan. And then we'll get to this in a few weeks. Luke twenty two twenty two. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to the man by whom he's betrayed. The Son of Man goes as it's been determined. This is all part of God's determined plan of what takes place, even Judas's betrayal. He's the son of destruction. He's greedy. He's hard-hearted. He did not resist Satan. Now, this is a truth that I don't have time to unpack, but I think the Bible teaches it, and it's kind of hard to wrap our minds around, but this is the, this is the truth. Judas was responsible for what he did. Judas made the choice to do what he did. But in doing that, he was fulfilling what God had ordained for him to do, and it was God's sovereign plan for Judas to betray Jesus. Jesus. So, Satan entered Judas, he was greedy, and it was part of God's plan. That's the question as to why. Why did Judas do it? But let's ask the second question this morning. Why did the other disciples never suspect Judas? Have you ever thought about that? Nobody suspected Judas. Now, I want to go to John's gospel and read John's account of this, the parallel to Luke. So if you don't mind, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. This is right after Jesus washes the disciples' feet and right before he um, institutes the Lord's Supper and he's up in the upper room, he's praying with his disciples and Jesus has a conversation that's a little bit more detailed here than what Luke's gospel gives us. But I want you to notice the same wording. So let's look at John chapter 13. Let's start in verse 21. Verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Well, the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Do you see that there again? Luke and John both tell us that. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas was, had the money bag, Judas, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night notice in verse 21 jesus is troubled in spirit a violent disturbance in his soul now why was jesus troubled now we know jesus is absolutely sovereign he knows that judas is going to do this we can only speculate why jesus is troubled 
Maybe Jesus is troubled over Jesus' hardness of heart. The fact that a friend of his that had been with him for three years is about to betray him, we really don't know. But in verse 21, he basically testifies, one of you will betray me. One of you will betray me. And all the disciples are looking around each other. Is he talking about me? Look at verse 22. Notice what he says there. One of the, the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. We're not sure who it is. None of them expected Judas. And that word there, uncertain, <laughs> that word uncertain really means it's a strong way to say they were perplexed. They were at a loss. This was confounding. This doesn't make sense. No one suspected Judas. Why? It means Judas was the greatest faker of all time. He was the greatest hypocrite and counterfeit the world has ever known. He lived with these guys for three years. He did life with these guys for three years. He was trusted with the money bag for three years. Think of how much he had to live up to fooling these disciples, faking it. Now, what's the answer to the question of the identity of the betrayer? Who is it? So, you kind of have to think about how they're sitting here. They're probably sitting in a U-shape with their feet fanned out. Jesus at the head of the table. Judas is probably at his left-hand side. John's probably at his right. Peter's probably over there. And Peter motions to John, like, ask him, like, which one is it? And Jesus says there in verse 26, what does he say? It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas the son of Simon Iscariot. Now, this was part of the Passover meal. They, they would dip the matzah bread into the bitter herbs, a bowl of fruit, dates, sour wine. And the fact that Jesus could so easily pass the dipping sauce probably meant that Judas was right there on his left-hand left side in a seat of honor. Now, what's going on with dipping his his morsel of bread into that sauce. What, what's the significance of that? In that culture, dipping a piece of bread at a table into the sauce at the Passover meal meant loyalty, friendship, commitment. It was a symbol of deep loyalty. In other words, Christ is extending a gesture of deep friendship and loyalty to Judas saying, are you going to be loyal? And what does Judas do? Judas takes it. He accepts it. Here's the shocking reality. If Judas was in his right frame of mind and not under the influence of Satan and was a repentant, soft-hearted man, he would not have accepted that morsel. He would have stopped and said, Jesus, I need to ask your forgiveness. I need to repent. My heart is heartened. And he would have repented at that moment. He would have repented of his treachery with godly grief. But he's cold. He's calculating. He's hypocritical. He doesn't care one lick that Jesus is doing this gesture of loyalty. Judas is basically saying, you think I'm loyal to you? Just you wait. It's churning in his heart and his mind. And then we see the same exact wording that Luke told us in verse 27. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Matthew 26, 24 says this, The Son of Man goes as it's written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. 
it would be better for that man if he'd not been born. And then in verse 27, I don't know if you caught it, it's very interesting. Jesus says to him, then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered him, and Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. What you're going to do, do quickly. In other words, Jesus is still in control. Satan, I know you're, I mean, Judas, I know you're going to go betray me. Do it quickly. Get done with it. In other words, Satan has to obey Jesus. Satan cannot do anything that Jesus does not allow him to do. Even do it throughout this entire situation, Jesus is in control. Think about Job. Satan couldn't attack Job without God's permission. So, in the greatest act of treachery, Jesus is still sovereign. Nobody suspects Judas leaving. They, they, they didn't catch it. He leaves with the money bag, and, and what are they thinking? Oh, he's probably going to pay for some supplies for the Passover, or maybe he's going to go give the poor. Judas is always walking out with his money bag. Who knows what he's doing? They didn't suspect him. He walks out, leaves the Passover meal, and nobody thinks twice. Oh, it's just Judas. He's going and doing his thing. But verse 30, and this is kind of one of those John symbolisms that you get in the Gospel of John. Verse 30. After receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Was that just a little incident, John? You want to tell us it was night? We know it's night. It was night. Metaphorically, symbolically, Judas had plunged into darkness. How's hell described as outer darkness? Judas had plunged himself into the abyss of hell at that moment, into spiritual darkness. Now that's the narrative from both the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of John. Now what's the application for us? How do we process this account of Judas betraying Jesus? Well, allow me to give three issues to think deeply about this morning in way of application. Here's the first. Nearness to Jesus does not mean that you've truly been saved by Jesus. Nearness to Jesus doesn't mean you've necessarily been saved by Jesus. Now, the story of Judas should make you uneasy because here's the thing. You can come to church. You can read your Bible. You may have even gotten baptized. You can do all these external things and be really close to Jesus, but never have your heart changed by Jesus grace. Judas spent three years close to Jesus. He traveled with Jesus. He ate with Jesus. Judas taught. Judas cast out demons. Judas healed. Judas heard the teachings. Judas heard Jesus pray. But there was no genuine repentance. He had the privilege of being close to Jesus, but did not have saving faith. And this is what scares me so much about kids that have grown up in this church. Let me just issue a strong warning this morning for those of you that have grown up with privilege. Some of you I've known since you were a little child. You started out in Cubbies, then you went to Team Clid, then you went to Club 45, and now we call it Adventure Club, and, now, and maybe you've gone to youth group, and now you're an adult, 
and you've had the privilege of being in a church that preaches and teaches God's word and you hear it every Sunday, you hear it every Wednesday, you're close to Jesus. You have Christian parents. You have a Christian church. You've got all these privileges of being close to Jesus. But you've never trusted in Jesus to save you. You should be sobered by Judas. He was around Jesus. He did all the church things you could think of. Mission trips, Jesus did, or Judas did that. VBS, I'm sure Judas went to VBS when he was a kid. No, I'm just joking. I don't know about that. All these things. Judas was outwardly a disciple, but inwardly was not saved by grace. Just because you talk a good talk about Jesus and you have some Bible knowledge and you've been around church doesn't mean that you're truly saved. Judas was near Jesus, but was not saved by Jesus. He was a fake. He was a counterfeit. He fooled all the other disciples, but there's one person he didn't fool. He didn't fool Jesus. Jesus knew exactly who Judas was. You may be able to fool others, but you can't fool God. Proverbs 10.9 says this, Whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but he who makes his way crooked will be found out. Judas thought he was pulling the wool over Jesus' eyes, but Jesus' wool over his eyes will not. That won't happen. You can't pull the wool over Jesus' eyes. Now, here's the scariest passage of Scripture in the entire Bible. It's from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 21 through 23. This is Jesus speaking. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I'm sure Judas called Jesus Lord, Lord many occasions. I'm sure Judas prophesied in Jesus' name on many occasions. I'm sure Judas cast out demons. Judas had a religious resume. He was numbered among the twelve. He was a close friend to Jesus. He was sitting next to Jesus at the Last Supper, probably. He was the treasurer. The guy people trusted. He was the clean-cut guy, the religious guy that nobody suspected. He knew his Bible inside and out, and yet Jesus never knew Judas. Hebrews 4.13 No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You can't hide hypocrisy from Jesus. Let me give you a second thing to think about. Second, Judas should cause us to humbly pray for God to search our hearts. If someone that close to Jesus can fall into temptation, what makes us think that we're any better? We need humility. You've heard the old statement, if not for the grace of God, there go I. 
we need some humility and dependence upon the Lord. Pray for him to search our hearts. This was read earlier during our time of confession, but I want to read it again. Psalm 139, 23 through 24. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That should be your daily prayer. Because you and I, we don't know our hearts very well. Our hearts to fool us, our hearts deceive us. We should be praying for God. Search my heart. Show me what hypocrisy lies there. Show me what pride lies in, deep in my heart. Lord, reveal my sin because sometimes I can't see it. I want you to guide me. I want you to lead me. We humbly rely upon Jesus every day and ask him to seek, search our hearts. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says this. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Examine yourself. Third, let us learn to repent early and quickly so that we don't continue in hardness of heart. Confess your sins quickly, early, do you know that unconfessed sin can lead to what's called a seared conscience? What's a seared conscience? 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 2. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. The original translation could say even branded or seared as if with a hot iron. It's as if... When you continue in sin and you don't repent, it's as if your conscience just gets numb. You got away with it. I'm going to do it again. And you just keep doing it. You keep doing it. And you, and you get hard-hearted. A seared conscience leads to a hard heart. And a hard heart leads to being more susceptible to the temptations of the devil. So we've asked two big questions this morning. Number one, why did Judas do it? And number two, why did the disciples not suspect him? And he is a warning for us to guard our hearts and pray for humility and confess our sins and trust in the grace of Christ. But here's question number three, and this is where I want to leave us with this morning. What's the significance of this happening at Passover? Both Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all tell us this happened at the Passover. What's the Passover? Well, the Passover is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's the, it's the Jewish festival where they celebrate what happened in the Old Testament where God delivered them out of Egyptian bondage. How did he do that? Through the blood of a spotless lamb. They put the blood on the doorpost and the lintels of their homes, and God delivered them by means of the blood of the lamb. God saved them. And so Passover is all pointing towards the Passover lamb being slaughtered. And during that time, as a matter of fact, when this week when things were happening in, in history, thousands of lambs were being slaughtered in Jerusalem in preparation for Passover. But it had to happen at just this time, on God's timetable. Judas had to betray Jesus right then and there at this time so that right at the Passover, Jesus could be slaughtered as the pure, spotless Lamb of God on the cross to fulfill all prophecy. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, For Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. Jesus is the true Passover Lamb. 
1 Peter 1, 18-19. Knowing that you were ransomed or you were bought from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. What were we bought with then? With the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We must look at this passage of Scripture and realize if not for the grace of God, we could all end up like Judas. We are weak. We are frail. We are tempted. We know the sin that lies deep in our hearts. We know our hypocrisy. We know our greed. And our only hope is Jesus. Our only hope is the blood of Christ. Our only hope is what Jesus accomplished as a true Passover lamb when he died on the cross, shed his blood, and rose again on the third day. We can leave today with a stark warning about Judas' betrayal, and that's appropriate. There's times to be a little uneasy and scared. But what I want us to leave with today is to have our eyes fixed on Jesus. Don't look at Judas. Look at Jesus. For every ten glances you take at yourself, take a hundred at Jesus. Don't look at Judas. Don't look at yourself. Look at Jesus. He's the pure, spotless lamb. He is our sacrifice. He is our Savior. He's the only one that can take away your sin. He's the only one that can cleanse your spiritual filth. He's the only one who died on the cross and rose again to forgive you. Our only hope is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Every single one of us in this room need Jesus. Whether you've walked in here today and it's your very first time to ever hear this message or you've heard this message for 50 plus years, every single one of us needs to leave this place knowing that Jesus is our hope. It's the cross of Christ. And so what should we all do? Well, we trust in Jesus. We rest in Jesus. We receive Jesus. We commit our lives to Jesus. Some of you in this room, it may be the very first time you've ever done that. And you're saying to yourself, I need Jesus. And for the very first time, you trust him. For others, it may be like every moment I need to trust him. I need him. So wherever you are this morning, the bottom line is this. We are way too sinful, way too weak, way too hypocritical, way too greedy to, 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 to have anything to stand before God in our guilt and our sin. If it weren't for the grace of God, we too would be like Judas. So we need God's grace. We need the cross of Christ. We all need to fix our eyes on Jesus. So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning and let's do that. Let's find our hope this morning in Jesus. Jesus, this is a, a stark reminder when we look at this passage of Scripture. We look at Judas and we, we wonder how he could do it. And yes, there was some satanic activity, obviously, and there was some fulfillment of prophecy. But he was also greedy. And Lord, we know our own hearts. We know the depth of greed in our hearts, the depth of 
materialism and idolatry and pride and sin that we have in our own hearts, Lord. And so we need your grace. We need your grace to cleanse us, to forgive us. And that only comes through Jesus, what you did for us on the cross. So Lord, I pray that as we leave this place today, our, our thoughts and our hearts and our eyes would be fixed upon you as our only hope, Jesus. We want to see you high and lifted up. We want to see you magnified. We want to see you as our only hope. We love you, Jesus. We honor you. We thank you for dying on the cross and rising again, for cleansing us, for forgiving us. We need you. So as we walk out of this place, Lord, may we be in an attitude this week of having you search our hearts, trying our thoughts, examining us so that we might be led in the way everlasting. So Lord, we, we in humility cry out to you. We want to be humble people. We want to be dependent people. Let us not walk out of this place with pride, but let us walk out of this place with humility and dependence and our eyes fixed on you. We love you, Jesus. We honor you. And it's in your name that we pray these things. Amen.